0: said one of my favorite piece of editorial advice was it needs to sound good. And I think that's just a really good rule of thumb. I think I translate thinking about the pleasure of reading. And so I don't bring a lot of, um, I don't think I bring a lot of sort of opinions in that way to the translation of the text. Like I want the reader to have, to feel the book as I have felt it, or as I feel that the writer wants you to feel it in Swedish. I want to convey what the writer is conveying and, Uh, Sometimes that means you do have to stray from the original a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Swedish, uh, I think, has a great capacity to hold a lot of silence in a very powerful and meaningful way, Mm -hmm. which can just be super flat in English. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, dialogue can be too perfunctory if you just keep it as sparse as it can be in Swedish. Mm -hmm. Um, There's often a lot of, like, body acting and looking, which I think is definitely not part of a sort of Anglophone convention i think we don't read that as subtext i think we read that as why is everybody looking at each other in this scene why why did kim look at saskia and then saskia looked at um out the window like mm. yeah and so i mean that's that's a real pick and choose moment like Mm -hmm. i tend to keep it and then sometimes every once in a while it's like this doesn't work as it is i'm going to rewrite this ever so slightly Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's also the question of transcreation or, like, am I improving the text when I translate? And, uh, I mean, I don't think so. I think part of the job of translating is to, yes, translate the language, but also translate the feeling, but also the culture. And sometimes that means intervening in the text a bit more. I'm very lucky, and I, I really translate excellent literature. So... There may be other questions that come up um, with other translators who maybe might be working with more popular texts and more extensive rewrites might be needed for different reasons. I, I haven't encountered those problems.
1: Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya-Connors. Saskia Vogel has been translating ever since she can remember. She grew up in Los Angeles in a bilingual household, English and German, and after moving to Sweden in her early teens, learned Swedish as well. Saskia has worked as a global publicist for Granta, a British literary magazine, and currently volunteers for the Finnish film festival Viva Erotica. In 2013, she transitioned to translating contemporary Swedish literature into English and writing novels of her own. I sat down with Saskia in our studio to discuss her recent work.
0: So I'm Saskia Vogel, and I am a writer. Um, my debut novel is called Permission. Uh, I'm in Seattle because I'm on book tour with the novel. Um, um, and then my day job, uh, I work as a literary translator from Swedish into English. And I I feel really lucky that I've gotten into a kind of niche of um, contemporary, like strong contemporary female. Voices, um, Carolina Ramqvist, Lena Wolf, whose book *The Polyglot Lovers* is coming out later this month, and Lena Anderson, whose um, *Acts of Infidelity* is coming out in May in the U.S. Um, those books—they deal a lot with uh, questions of gender and power and the patriarchy—and overlap really nicely with my own interests and questions that I explore um, in my own writing.
1: So, did you start as a translator or as a writer?
0: I started uh, as a writer. Um, I mean, I think I started as a, pr- well, I don't know. My, my mom just sent me a box of stuff from like her basement. She moved recently and was uh, unloading some stuff. And I found um, some books that we had made together before I could write. So apparently I've been dictating books to my mother uh, before I could write, but I hadn't remembered um, that I did that. Until I saw these like lovely artifacts, they're properly bound books with, um, you know, title pages and everything, um, bound with like cardboard and wallpaper and that kind of thing. I think for a long time I was primarily interested in storytelling. I was just really, really interested in lots of different kinds of storytelling forms. I um, was really interested in film for a while and visual storytelling, but I think the sort of simplicity of myself and the page and being able to create anything you like with just a pen and paper, I think um, that, that made me uh, choose writing over a much more complex career like film, I suppose. Complex is in y- you need a lot more people to make a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: well, could you tell me a little bit about your debut novel then? What is it called?
0: Sure, my novel's called Permission. I, I set out to kind of write the least sensational book possible about a topic that's often sensationalized, which is BDSM, sexuality, sort of fetish subculture. Um, But really, it's a coming-of-age story about a girl called Echo who loses her father really unexpectedly. Then she moves back home with her mother, and they don't have a very good relationship, and there's not much to do at home. And she starts kind of spying on her neighbors, and her neighbors, her new neighbors across the street, it turns out it's a dominatrix who's setting up shop in one of the suburban homes together with her renter, but also a long term client of hers called Piggy. And they enter into a sort of healing relationship that is friendly, but also intimate and erotic at times. Um, And I suppose it's a book that looks at, you know, what do we do with our pain? Like, we're all going to go, we'll all experience loss and pain, but how do we we process it? And also the healing potential of certain um, BDSM practices, which I think I look at in the way that some people might look at Sort of massage as b- body work, that kind of thing. Um, and taking a, put, I put the erotic very much in the center of this novel. And I wanted to tell the story through a kind of sensualist perspective. Um, yeah.
1: So BDSM is not a very public culture. How did you prepare for writing this novel?
0: Well, my, uh, I, when I moved back to LA after I finished university in London, My best friend was living in a house share in Los Angeles with a group of people who were really involved in the sort of fetish nightlife scene in Los Angeles in the early 2000s. There was a real moment where there were a lot of clubs that were sort of um, more and more visible and um, parties and nights. And so there was kind of a great sort of public moment, I suppose, or a real nightlife moment. And um, I was really impressed. I was maybe 23. And had never seen, I guess, non-heteronormative relationship structures and people really challenging and questioning the roles that they otherwise maybe were expected to play by former lovers or their family or society. And um, I did an MFA and wrote a very not accomplished book at all, kind of just telling the sort of their stories. I think I was trying to be like Gay Talese or something with Thy Neighbor's Wife, but I, I did not know how to handle a book of reportage at that age. And eventually those stories kind of, some drifted away, some felt like some I just didn't think about so much anymore. But um, there are a few stories that stuck, and those turned into Echo and Piggy.
1: You mentioned that some of the novels that you've translated from Swedish have had similar themes dealing with gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Did that influence how you approached your novel?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think thinking about the word permission, I think reading like Lena Wolf and Carolina Romquist, whose books I w- was translating while I was working on my novel, kind of gave me permission to experiment formally in certain ways. But also um, Carolina uh, Romquist's book, The White City, is about a woman who's kind of lost all of her resources, a sort of gangster girlfriend who no longer has access to the sort of power structures that kept her in a very protected, uh, luxurious space. She's powerless. And, you know, it's a book about being powerless in a way and and reversals of power. And, um, you know, there were certain scenes in that book that really helped me think through the questions I had, I guess, about power dynamics in um, Los Angeles culture. In a sort of post-Weinstein, like, Me Too world, it was those sort of questions that had been in my mind, but uh, we didn't have Me Too yet when I started writing the book. So um, it's been really interesting to have a new language to use when talking about the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Do you think that in the wake of Me Too that culture is is changing or is it the conversation that's, that's changing?
0: That's a really, really good question. Um, off the cuff, I would say the conversation is changing. I think it'll take a little bit longer for the culture to change, but as the conversation changes, I think inevitably the culture will change, hopefully. Um, but what's really lovely, there's this one scene, there's a dinner scene in Carolina Romkvist's The White City, and there's a dinner scene in my book, and they're both dinner scenes where um, the powerless female character is having dinner with somebody who has power over them. And um, she's on this, is it a date? Is it a, is it a business meeting with this guy? And I, when I wrote it pre-me too, I, I was wondering how it might be received by readers, how it would be read, if it might be kind of dismissed as, oh, well, that's just echo and van. That's not, you know, a general cultural phenomenon, which it felt like a general cultural phenomenon, at least in Los Angeles, this sort of um, uncomfortableness that we now can sort of that we now have an entire context for and a very clear example of the power to Structures at play that have um, been used to take advantage of people who have less power by people who have more power. Uh, I was in Sweden at the time that kind of Me Too was breaking, and the response in Sweden was very immediate and also resonated really strongly in the um, cultural community. I mean, Me Too is sort of broad strokes because I I know I'm not doing the complexity of how it unfolded in Sweden justice, but. I think broad strokes, you could say Me Too is the reason that there was no Nobel Prize in Literature awarded this year. It was sort of this notorious open secret that he was a Weinsteinian figure in the literary community with strong connections to the Swedish Academy.
1: Saskia is referring to a scandal that broke in Sweden the fall of 2017 when at least 18 women accused the literary organizer, Jean-Claude Arnoux, of sexual assault and rape. Arnu was charged and convicted of rape, and he is now serving a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence. After the allegations went public, the Swedish Academy cut off all ties with Arnu and his wife Katarina Frustensson, a member of the Academy herself. Allegations arose of financial misconduct, and six members resigned in protest. Eventually, Katarina resigned without admitting any wrongdoing. When the dust settled, there were only 10 of the original 18 members left it was decided to cancel the award for 2018
0: one of the things that i thought was really really lovely um, so me too broke in the fall and i was in sweden in the early spring and um, i went to visit uh, someone in malmo who was saying that as a result of me too she had been she and some other local artists had been going around speaking to museum curators etc to talk about how they could address these imbalances and these issues um, kind of on a on a local level in local in the local arts community. So it was fascinating to kind of watch Me Too unfold and move through Sweden because it seemed like you know there was such a strong and immediate response and things did happen as a result. Stuff changed.
1: One such change was the creation of the so-called New Academy made up of about 100 Swedish writers, poets, musicians, and librarians who banded together to create a replacement prize for literature in lieu of the Nobel. The group selected 46 nominees and invited the public to vote as well, something never done for the Nobel Prize.
0: We'll see what that'll be like in the long term, but um, it was really fascinating to watch from, from abroad.
1: Maybe I can ask you some questions about your translation work then. Of course. When I think about translation, there are words and sentences that you can only translate one way, but then there are others which you can translate three, four, <laughs> five, ten ways. How do you make choices?
0: By feeling, I think. I think this is the thing that I say the most about translation. Um, I realized coming to the university today, I felt a little intimidated because I don't come from I a, a, I didn't study translation. Um, I don't have a sort of rigorous theoretical framework um that i can use to speak about translation i think i came to translation quite intuitively i read something i loved and i felt like i could take the story into english and so that kind of feeling how the book makes me feel how the how the rhythm how the rhythm of the language moves um that's that's how i make choices and then sometimes it's very practical like um This sentence structure works in Swedish, but it doesn't work in English. Um, So I'm just going to have to bash that around. Or working with idioms. You know, I think sometimes I really want to preserve Swedish idioms. I've never seen this in a text, but like um, the phrase, which is, I guess you would sort of translate it as like random, you know. (laughs) But in Swedish, it's like, hello, axe shaft, shaft of an axe. And sometimes I think it's so nice to be able to retain the Swedish idiom, but you want the reader to be able to understand what's what. And so, you know, sometimes you kind of might lose out on some of the inherent playfulness in poetry that exists in Swedish um, through set phrases. Um, So in Swedish, solkatter, it's the sort of, you know, sort of spots of light, of sunlight that like filter and or like maybe scatter on a wall, you know, like um, light filtered through the trees or um, that end up with these sort of like glowing, beautiful spots of light um, on the floor, on the wall, on your skin. And sulkat, cat, is such a lovely notion. You know, so, you know uh, often those spots of light will be moving and sort of dancing around the room. And I think there's just something inherently playful about the notion of a sun cat. Um, which every Swede understands and then maybe by putting it in the literary text maybe highlights the catness of the phrase but in English um, in sort of translators forms there was a recent discussion um, and people were sharing how they translate sun cats and some you know some stick with spots of light and another person I really like this solution they were again back to feeling sort of translating kind of the notion of sun cats so you know, like spots of light pouncing around the room to sort of bring the idea of like a feline quality to the description. Um, I think that's that's really nice.
1: Do you have um, sort of a goal of how you hope people will, like what kind of experience you'll, that you hope they'll have reading a book that you've translated? I, I don't
0: I don't know. So the thing with translation and, and translating and writing is um, through translation, I've had a lot of practice letting go of things also when I was a publicist. So, I mean, that's maybe something um, important to bring in. So I I used to be the publicist at Granta Magazine. And, you know, I would read reviews of the issues that we had done or of certain stories in the issue. And sometimes people just get things really, like, that. It's just, you can see that they're reading, they're not reading the same text that I was reading, maybe. Um, And I had that also reading reviews of translations that I've done. And, you know, you just see that people, like as soon as the text leaves your hands, it becomes somebody else's. As soon as it and you give, you give it to the editor, it becomes somebody else's. And, um, yeah, so I feel like I've had a lot of practice in terms of like letting things go and trying not to have those expectations. Um, yeah, and just to to let the texts belong to other people. Um, I'm really happy. I guess in a post Fifty Shades of Grey kind of world, that the conversation around BDSM and like fetish and sexuality, um, I think is in a different place. So I think people are able to read permission, um, kind of, kind of with, with enough background information, so that they can kind of. I'm really happy that the readings are kind of very much about power structures and patriarchy and power dynamics and the. The value of the erotic and the uses of the erotic, just to riff on Audre Lorde, who um, was a really whose essay, The Uses of the Erotic, was a really big influence. Um, and so that makes me really happy. And I think I would have been having a much harder time right now if the book was maybe being read in like wildly different ways, you know. But, you know, some people prefer Piggy to Echo. I love them all, <laughs> 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 you know. Um yeah. And I'm really proud of the translations that I do. So, like there, I feel like I'm facilitating a conversation. I'm I'm adding something to the anglosphere, um, and that's what makes me happy.
1: If you've exhausted your collection of Nordic crime fiction and would like to read Saskia's novel or one of her Swedish translations, you can find them all on her website, saskiavogel.com. That's S A S K I A V O G E L.com. Links to her website can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website, scandinavian.washington.edu. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya-Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbu. Today's music was used with permission by Christian rønner Paulson. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a class or declaring a major. Language classes are a great way to build a lifelong skill and get to know a culture in a small classroom environment. You can find complete course listings, as well as languages offered by the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.